Apple Card is the perfect cash back rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Slate Money is brought to you by Braintree. Looking to set up payments for your business? Braintree gives your app or website a payment solution that accepts just about every payment method with one simple integration. Plus, we'll give you your first $50,000 in transactions fee-free. To learn more, visit braintreepayments.com slash slate money. And by Mile IQ. If you're one of the 60 million Americans who drive for work, then you know that your miles are your dollars. Every mile you don't log is money that you are losing. Mile IQ is the only mileage tracker app that detects, logs, and calculates your miles for you ensuring that every mile is accounted for and no dollar is lost. Try Mile IQ for free today by texting Slate Money to 31996. That's Slate Money to 31996. And by ZipRecruiter. With ZipRecruiter, you can post your job to over 100 job sites with a single click and an interface that's easy to use. And right now, you can try it for free. Go to ZipRecruiter.com slash Slate Money. That's ZipRecruiter.com slash Slate Money. Hey, Panoply listener, looking for more podcasts for your playlist? Check out the Vulture TV podcast for great discussion about the latest TV shows or check out Sex Lives for fascinating conversations about sex. You can find them on iTunes, Panoply.fm, or on your favorite podcasting app. Hello, and welcome to the chicken or the eggs edition of Slate Money, your guide to the business and finance news of the week. Uh, Felix Salmon of Fusion is sadly out on vacation right now. Not sad for him, I don't think. No, not sad for him, uh, but deeply sad for us. Um, So I'll be your host. I'm Slate's Moneybox columnist, Jordan Weissman. And as always, I am joined by the lovely and brilliant Kathy O'Neill, the blogger at mathbabe.org. Hi, everyone. And uh, we have, don't worry, it's not just a a duo this week. We have a special guest, uh, Miriam Gottfried from the Wall Street Journal, who is part of the Heard on the Street team and, if I I believe, has a brand new podcast herself. 
We do. Heard on the Street, the podcast, uh, comes out every Thursday. You can subscribe on iTunes under WSJ Heard on the Street. Awesome. And we're very excited to have her with us. So what are we talking about this week? We're going to start with whether or not it should be easier to discharge uh, student loans in bankruptcy. The Supreme Court might possibly be weighing in on that issue at some point soon. Then... We're going to talk about a lawsuit involving egg donors and uh, whether or not they they should be paid more, essentially, uh, for their eggs. But first, before all that, we're going to talk about fried chicken, uh, pizza, and Chinese food. Uh, So, Miriam, kind of what's going on with Yum Brands? So, Yum Brands, which is the company that owns brands that we're more familiar familiar with, uh, Pizza Hut, Taco Bell, and KFC... Uh, just decided that it is going to split into two. It's going to cleave off its China business and make that one separate publicly traded company and then have another business that has the U.S. and every other country. And it's all around the world with these concepts. Did, did Yum Brands like start in China? It sounds like a, a weird name, <laughs> Yum Brands. I mean, it just doesn't sound American. It did American. not start in China, but it, it has been tremendously popular in China, like ridiculously popular. KFC is one of the most popular concepts in China. Yeah, so this is this is sort of a big deal because if I'm not mistaken, uh, KFC was the first American fast food restaurant to ever go to China, right? They were like the, I think they, they had a location near Tiananmen Square, if I'm right about that. They and, were very early on in the game. Yeah, and, and now... And if they're so popular, why are these two companies splitting? It's a really good question. So for a long time, this was the huge asset that Yum Brands had, and it made it trade at a huge premium. It's stock traded at a huge premium to other fast food companies that were also in, um, you know, international markets. And it was because of this fast growing China market. But now you might have heard China's not doing all that hot. Growth has slowed. There are concerns there. And before that, even there were health scares with, you know, or food safety scares Mm. with um, that related to chicken that Yum was serving. Um, People thought that there might be too much antibiotics in their chicken and that caused sales to dip. And basically, it means that the China piece is a lot more volatile than the rest of Yum's business. To be clear, I mean, when we say that China's growth has slowed, it's still way faster than like the United States, correct? Yeah. Yeah. When people talk about China's growth slowing, what they're saying is, oh, well, you know, in the mid-2000s, they were doing 10% per year, and now they're claiming to be doing 7 but it might be closer to 5 So it is a it is a fast-growing economy compared to a place like the U.S., but it's just not sort of going gangbusters like it was a few years back. So the premium that we used to have on Yum! Brands as a whole, as a company, was because basically it, it was tied in with the expectation that China would continue to grow at this ridiculous pace, correct? Exactly. People get really excited about that, and then they'll bid a stock up with the expectation that, you know, 12% growth or whatever is the future for China, and it might just not be the case all the time. So, Mary, I want to ask, though, how much of this is about China slowing down, and how much of it is it about the marketing geniuses behind KFC and Pizza kind of screwing up the China market? You know, from what I've read, there's a sense that they got there early, and so it was sort of easy to impress people in 1987 in China. And so they were the only show in town. And as China's gotten richer, it's been, you know, it's sort of almost the same thing that's happened in the United States. People's tastes have gotten better, and no one wants to eat 
kind of gross KFC food anymore. Well, I don't know if it's actually that nobody wants to eat gross KFC food anymore because you would be surprised. Okay. But there's a ton of competition now. So it used to be that Yum! was the only show in town, as you said, with KFC. And now everyone and their mom is like, oh, look what Yum! did. We got to go in there and do the same thing. So if you want to eat gross fast food, you can really go to so many different places now. And then I think the other factor is... Yum, Yum's marketers have misread the Chinese consumer recently, and this is sort of tied to the economics of the Chinese consumer. I read that recently they had some sort of promotion where they were like selling steaks at KFC, like trying to be more high end, like a steak dinner. And everyone was like, we don't want to spend that much money. Like we're, you know, our economy's not growing as fast. We're like tightening our belts. You, right, know, you guys right. really didn't do the right marketing here. So here's here's my question, which, you know, we talked about this very briefly last time when we talked about mergers and how much money Wall Street makes on mergers. Like, here's a separation, right? Um, an anti-merger, if you will. Why is that a good idea for the company? Like, it seems to me like Yum! Brands as a whole, yes, their China business is going down a little bit. So their overall stock price should go down a little bit. Why does it behoove them to split into two pieces? Well, I mean, it really has to do with the times. So right now, China is looking riskier. It's looking more volatile. And that's pulled Yum! Brand's overall stock price down so that it doesn't trade at a premium to McDonald's anymore, for example. And by splitting it apart, you can go for two different sets of investors. You can go for the investors who are really interested in like the slow and steady cash flow of the dependable outside of China business. You're not going to get that growth. You're not going to get that fast China growth. But you can kind of count on it to keep chugging along. And then for the China segment, you can get the investors who are more in for that wild ride, who want the growth, and who might have a greater appetite for risk, no pun intended. <laughs> so, I mean, th- there's, an, I mean, I guess there, there are a lot of kind of undercurrents going in this story that I find interesting. But another one that I've seen people point to is the question of China's regulators and just sort of China's attitude towards foreign companies in general. Um, one theory is that by basically cutting Yum! Brands in two. And if I, if I believe correctly, its China operations are almost half the company. I mean, it's a massive portion of, of KFC and Pizza Hut sales. But by, by cleaving itself in two and creating a local Chinese company, essentially, they're going to get more favorable treatment from the powers that be, um, possibly from state-backed media. You mentioned that there were all these reports of health scares, for instance, a few years ago. Um, and, you know, a lot of that, I mean, it was Chinese state-backed media saying, oh, their chicken has been dropped on the floor and served, or uh, they're using all these hormones and antibiotics, in, from their, or so their suppliers are using all these hormones and antibiotics, or, oh, they're using spoiled meat. These are things that also apply to some local companies, but KFC really got raked over the coals, and you kind of had to wonder how much of that was them going after an American You're company. saying it might have been like government-backed sabotage of an American company, kind of? Or just like a sort of uh, uh, some degree of corporate nationalism, yeah. Or maybe another way of thinking about it is, I mean, before this comment, Jordan, I was thinking that by splitting these two companies, you're sort of uh, you know, you're putting the Chinese bet in one company and the American bet on the other. But another way of thinking about that is maybe American investors don't like to worry about food regulation in China. Like they are maybe the American um, investors actually care more about that. Than, than Chinese uh, Chinese investors. So maybe that's why they think there's a a benefit of having two different investors. Well, to be clear, classes. American investors will invest in the Chinese 
company. It some will, of them will. Yeah, it'll be it'll be like it could be some of the same investors who currently invest in Yum Brands might say, "Look, I'm in it for the China thing. I'm going to go for China, right? And I'm I'm going to sell my shares of you know the rest of Yum." Or it, I think it will be a different type of investor in each in each piece of the stock, but both of them will become more valuable because you won't have them being tied to the other, like, increasingly unrelated portion of the business. Yeah, right. I think that's true to a degree. I mean, they're, they're, to be clear, this company will operate in China. It's basically going to be a giant franchisee. They're going to have the rights to o- operate all these restaurants, but it's just going to be, like, the world's biggest franchisee. Um, and, of course, Chinese the Chinese government does really put their hands into companies in China, so maybe it does behoove them to be a Chinese company. Yeah, yeah. but they... and. I they, just love the word behoove today. For the <laughs> no, no, it's, it's a great word. So, they, you know, they may do the same thing that Alibaba did, for instance, and actually list in the U.S., although there's some talk about them listing in Hong Kong to look even a little bit more local. I, 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 and, you know, it's that's sort of a, a small detail, but it does, again, speak to this whole issue of, you know, are they doing this just to get better treatment in China? Another thing that interests me here is that a few years ago, there was this sense that giant American brands that Americans had kind of gotten tired of could remake themselves in China. And that was kind of what KFC was like the ultimate example of that. Like Americans had gotten tired of their fried chicken and moved on to Popeye's and moved on to Chick-fil-A and moved on to any other option. Um, same with, you know, Pizza Hut. And the the future was in the, you know, in the East. Now that doesn't seem to be working so much. I'm kind of wondering, you know, what happens to this American company that's now left? Like, How do they grow? What do they become? Do you have any thoughts on that, Mary? Well, so they have said they're going to become like, a massive fran they're basically going to be only fran- franchise yeah. restaurants it's going to be they said 95% by 2017 and i said well what is it now and basically that piece already is like 91% so they're going to be pretty close to all franchise and that and that is good for them in that all it is is basically licensing their brand to other people who will invest the capital in growing. But they're not going to be growing that quickly. I mean, we're pretty saturated with uh, KFC, Pizza Hut, and Taco Bell in the U.S. There might they, they are in a number of other markets. Um, but, you know, for example, the Indian market isn't seen as having the potential of being really a China for them. We'll see if there are other growth areas. Right now, you know, what's also really funny is Taco Bell is having this great time. Like Taco Bell isn't even in China. So there's no China Chinese Taco Bell. So maybe that's an opportunity for China. But um, Taco Bell is doing really well. They introduced breakfast. Um, and so their same store sales have been surging. So that's been like a source of excitement about the non-Chinese part of Yum. I used to work next to a Taco Bell and I just know a little bit too much about the back of the of the store. Yeah, so. I, I, I one time wrote, a, a, you know, a story where I referred to Taco Bell as like the Bell Labs of stoner food. Like that, <laughs> that was like, you know, they, that, they're the one thing because they just do all these things like Doritos, Locos, tacos and waffle tacos. And it's just like goofy stuff that is like somehow seems vaguely innovative. And that's like. <laughs> It's the only way they manage to get excitement about their brand at this point, just by pulling stunts. But they're the best stunt food creator, I think, in in America. And I mean, you know, KFC for a while had the double down. So Yum Brands is pretty good. Maybe that's their future, just like bizarro creations. (laughs) Uh, But anyway, uh, on that note, we have to move on. This episode of Slate Money is brought to you by Braintree, the easy online payment solution used by a few companies you might have heard of, like Uber, Hotel Tonight, Living Social, Munchery, and Airbnb. 
Uh, Braintree has made the payments experiences in these apps delightfully seamless, as pretty much anyone who's used them can tell you. And now you, too, can add a similar experience to your own app. Uh, with excellent customer service and simple integration, Braintree gives you ready-to-receive payments quickly. And Braintree's continuous support plus fast payouts means you'll be prepared as your company grows from your first dollar to your billionth and you know grows into a lovely, lovely unicorn. Braintree is also helping solve the problem of mobile cart abandonment by offering a best-in-class mobile checkout experience so people who you know pick out things to buy on your app will actually purchase them. And so if you are a mobile app developer and you're listening, check out Braintree for yourself to learn more. And for your first $50,000 in transactions fee-free, go to braintreepayments.com slash slate money. Kathy. Yes. Talk to me about egg donors. Yeah. So um, there was an article in the New York Times, um, which is uh, linked to on our, our page, our landing page, um, which is a, is a basically a, a price-fixing claim by a woman who's an egg donor. She's co- complaining that um, she's not being properly compensated for egg donation. And uh, just to, to explain a little bit about that, egg donation is um, a pretty in you know involved procedure where a woman has to go through a hormone treatment to sort of make her body produce more than the usual number of eggs. There's also sorts of requirements on the woman, which we can get into. Um, and then at, at the end of the month, um, she has to undergo a small surgery and then be in bed for a day. So it's, it's a pretty um, involved or deal. And right now there's guidelines, no regulation so far, but guidelines that say that she shouldn't be compensated more than $10,000 for this procedure. Yeah. So these guidelines come from the American Association of Reproductive Medicine, if I'm, I'm getting that right. And the, as that, you know, it's a membership group I and mean, there are lots of medical groups like this and they don't have any hard and fast rules, but it's sort of an ethical recommendation that says, if you are paying an egg donor um, who should be compensated uh, we should say who these donors are not compensated for their eggs. They're they're theoretically compensated for their their time and inconvenience going through this procedure. But we all know in reality there's this thriving market for women who need younger women's eggs too because they have fertility issues, um, and so they're willing to pay for them. However, they say if you're going to pay a woman for this, it's inappropriate to pay more than ten thousand dollars. And their justification for this is theoretically if you were to pay more it might start encouraging poor women uh, to offer their eggs up for harvest, not because they really want to, not because of any sense of, you know, good, you know, service to humanity or or altruism, but just because they want the payday. Um, and- I don't know. $10,000 sounds like a lot to me <laughs> yeah. already. So I think, I mean, it, it does sort of seem like an arbitrary line in the sand to be drawing. And it's not even a really a very hard and fast line, as the article sort of went into. I mean, it's just a guideline. And there are already people who regularly pay more than $10,000. Yeah, you know, I think, I'm, first of all, $10,000, uh, it depends on what it is, right? And um, you know, there's a lot of needles on a daily basis. Some people would charge way m- more than $10,000 for that service. In particular, the, g- generally speaking, the wealthy people who are paying to get these eggs, I don't know if they would be willing to undergo that for $10,000, even if they can't get the eggs in the end. So I guess there's the issue that she's bringing up, which I think is a really interesting one, is that this egg donor is a market, is a market. Like if you go online, which I did, and I I pretended I wanted to become an egg donor in incognito mode on Chrome. And um, it, you know, there's all sorts of things that I, you know, there's all sorts of ways in which my eggs would be more valuable 
Um, and they're, some of them are really unseemly, like if you're white, if you're um, not fat. I'm too fat for it, by the way. Um, if you have a graduate education, there's all sorts of like yeah, weird... Yeah, Ivy League. Yes. I saw Jewish women was in the list. And Asian for some reason. <laughs> Miriam, for anyone who's wondering, <laughs> uh, Miriam did a raise the roof kind of thing when she said Jewish women. And like, I just want to say you have to, you have to be between 21 and 29. And anyway, the point is that you... I guess the point is that it's a market. It is a market. And who's making the money off of this? It's the clinics that are are doing the harvesting and and charging the parents, the, the surrogate parents or whatever and there, you want there to call And there is them. one risk that we didn't mention, which is that there's a potential cancer risk. Oh, right? really? So, yeah, I mean, that's pretty – I mean, it's not – the science isn't clear. It's not definite that you increase your risk of cancer by doing this. But there is some evidence to that fact. And, you know, that – I mean, if if that's the case, then, I mean, I guess the sky's the limit on what it might be worth. Moreover, there are, you know, people that have done studies on how much uh, these women who are the harvest, who are harvested, the egg donors, how much information they actually get about the risks. And the answer is they don't get much answers. So the first question is, is it ethical? I feel like we have to answer that question first, because if we decide it's not ethical, we should just not allow it. But then if we do allow when it and say, we call it ethical, ethical, you mean egg donors in ge- egg donations in general? Yeah. I mean, if the risks are too large for the average woman yeah. to to ag- agree to, if there are medical risks, we might just say this is not a good idea for people. But if we say it's OK and then we say, but women can't be compensated very much for it, it can't be an actual fair market, a free market. I feel like that that doesn't seem right. Yeah, I mean, so here is my – I'm a tiny bit torn about this um, because there, this it is this weird intersection of um, medical ethics and what has very obviously become a market. It is a health organization. It's not really a trade group technically, but it's sort of acting like a trade group that has come in and said, okay, you can only pay your uh, people who are survi- providing your raw materials uh, this amount. Um, and so it makes it, it's kind of queasy. And, and, you know, the whole point of antitrust law is you can't have essentially a, a group of companies coming together and saying, oh, we're only going to, you know, we're going to put a cap on what we're going to pay people or, um, you know, what we're going to or, you know, fix a price that we're going to sell something at. Yeah, it looks so, like a little bit of a cartel. Yeah, It does look like a cartel, even if it's an accidental cartel, because these people are medical professionals. They don't necessarily think in those terms. I will say when you said it's a little bit of an arbitrary line in the sand. You can't. It is a really arbitrary line in the sand. Apparently, the way they came up with this ten thousand dollar number. Oh yeah, is, this is crazy. It's amazing. Is that they they looked at the amount of time a man has to spend in a um in a basically a clinic to donate sperm, and then just multiplied those hours out and how much they are compensated for, which is about a hundred bucks to give sperm. Which I mean, it's not that hard to do. Let's be real. So hundred bucks is fine. <laughs> not that and unpleasant like, yeah, either. No, exactly. And there are a yeah, lot of but, them. Yeah, exactly. So <laughs> which but, is it probably is a market. Yeah, right? free market. Oh, it right is there. totally a free oh, market. Yeah. But so, and they they took that hundred bucks and just multiplied it out by the number of hours that women need to spend um, to in, have in a their medical egg, facility, facility, right? To have yeah. their eggs harvested. And what's kind of crazy about that is it doesn't take into consideration any of the health risks. Apparently, it hasn't been updated for inflation since like 2000. the year two thousand. Yeah. Um, there are all sorts of things wrong with this number. So not only is it maybe an accidental cartel, it's not a particularly carefully thought out one. I mean, there are all sorts of issues with this. But I would say that if we are worried about um, convincing lower income women to sell their kind of coercing lower income women to selling their eggs, which again, apparently is the, it's the same way we worry about coercing people into selling their kidneys or something. Um, you know, that's, 
that's probably something for government regulation to handle. That's the an- answer to these antitrust questions, I think, is, you know, a bunch of companies don't come together and make a cartel. You, you, If society as a whole is worried about this, you pass some legislation. That's really it. And I, there are economists who specialize in valuing these kinds of things. And oh, yeah? Yeah. I mean, well, I mean, it's not exactly this, but I mean, in, you know, the September 11th, this is only tangential, tangentially related, but they had to decide who, to, how much to pay the, the victims of the September 11th, you know, um, attacks, and they had to determine the value of a life. So there are people who go and determine the value oh, yeah. of all different kinds of things. Uh, you know, I will say there is a one um, counter argument here, just to play devil's advocate. The fact is that some women do get paid six figures for their eggs. And I, a 27-year-old, you know, former crew team member who went to Harvard and is now working on Wall Street can get paid a lot of money for her, you know, essentially for her DNA. Um, and to some degree, that, that shows that this cartel is failing. It's not really a very effective cartel. I don't know if that's much of a legal argument against it, but the market, the free market is able to, um, has managed to find a way somehow I do wonder if it's the bigger issue here is just providing more information to women so that there's some transparency yeah, so they I mean, know what their eggs are so worth. So the, the number of these harvests ha- has skyrocketed over the last couple decades to like 20,000 per year that are kept track of and probably more. And yeah, we should definitely keep track of the risks involved. And if we find that the risks aren't that big or we could mitigate the risks with um, doing it very carefully... Um, then I think we should we should make this a free market. By the way, there are there are laws against organ selling your organs. But let's face it, eggs are not organs. Just like sperm are not organs. Um, sperm we think of sperms and eggs as very different because you can sort of just make more sperm. But really, women do not use all their eggs. You know, it's like a finite supply, but a very large, you know, very large finite supply. So I I actually I'm kind of leaning towards really understanding the medicine issue around here, around this, the risks, and then saying, like, yes, the sky's the limit. Like, why not? Just just have a database where people can go and figure out basically what their eggs are actually worth rather than having them, you know, have to go by these weird ethical guidelines. I also think that... um, the sociology around how how which eggs are chosen for what reason are, is really interesting and should be examined. There's all sorts of data around this that uh, oh yeah, fascinating. The, it's only getting bigger, of course, because yeah. we know that all these kinds of fertility issues are are growing. Yeah, I mean, as women have children later, the the need for IVF and kind of fertility treatments is is. Yeah, increasing. I mean, and it's not just women. It's also gay couples wanting mm-hmm. to have uh, babies. There's all kinds of um, other, you know. Yeah, reasons absolutely. that people might want this. And those people want to know they're not putting other people's lives at risk. You know, everybody really wants more information on this. All right. Um, so that's fertility. We've uh, now going to be moving on to student loans in a moment. But first, from appointments of clients to meetings to errands, unless you're chained to your desk all day, then you're one of the 60 million Americans who drives for work. And you're either spending too much time tracking every mile or you're guesstimating and end up losing money. And even then, your estimate could be as much as 20% less than what you could be claiming. Mile IQ is the solution you've been looking for. Mile IQ is the number one mileage tracker app and is trusted by hundreds of thousands of Americans. Mile IQ is the only mileage tracker that detects, logs, and calculates your drives for you automatically. Mile IQ is easy to use and keeps all of your drives securely stored in the cloud. If you drive for work and you're not counting every single mile, then you're burning money every time you take a drive. 
In fact, the average MileIQ user logs $535 a month in drives. MileIQ does all the work, letting you focus on what's important. That's why they've got a five-star rating in both the Google Play and iTunes app stores. So stop wasting time manually tracking your miles and stop losing money you should be claiming. Try MileIQ for free today by texting SLATEMONEY to 31996. That's SLATEMONEY to 31996. So, uh... If you tuned in, well, several weeks ago now, a while back, you you heard me, Felix, and Ellie Mistel of of Above the Law arguing uh, pretty angrily at points about the ethics of student loans and whether or not it's okay to default. But um, at the end of it, Felix brought up this interesting question. He asked me, do you think student loans should be dischargeable in bankruptcy? Uh, And the reason he asked that is because right now it is damn near impossible to discharge a student loan in when, when if you in go to any court. condition in any condition it's, yeah. it's very hard there's this standard called undue hardship that you have to meet that has sort of evolved over the years into um i guess the, one, a phrase that one court uses to describe it as a certainty of hopelessness Oof. that you could ever pay <laughs> so back bleak. your debt so yeah. <laughs> this, is this is what judges are saying you have to have, there has to be a certain show me of the noose yeah exactly <laughs> show me i mean <laughs> Actually, it's almost metaphysical in a way, because uh, I mean, like, how do you even? How do you show a certainty of hopelessness? And so we had so, a we had a, re, a listener write in to us, right? We, we've had a few listeners write in uh, about this subject of, of bankruptcy and student loans, but so we thought we'd bring it back up this week uh, because there, there's been some developments. This, this issue it's not necessarily going to happen, but it might be go, be going before the Supreme Court. There is this case involving a man named Mark Tetzlaff. Um, who took on a incredible amount of debt and has been trying to get it discharged in a bankruptcy. And I, I want to, and so far has been unsuccessful. He's kept appealing. And I just wanted to give you a quick description of this man's life from a Bloomberg article about him, because it really gives you a sense of how hard it is to convince a court that you're facing a certainty of hopelessness. Um, the Wisconsinite accumulated $260,000 in debt after getting an MBA at Marquette University, then attending but not graduating from law school at DePaul University, and, fin- and finally finishing his law degree at the for-profit Florida Coastal School of Law. He failed the bar exam twice. He has been out of work since 2004 and says he cannot get employed anywhere because employers repeatedly reject him on the basis of his criminal record. He now lives with his 86-year-old mother and the two survive on her social security income. This is a guy who is 57 years old. The courts have still set up until this point that there is no uh, certainty of hopelessness. Uh, he finally is appealed this to Supreme Court. He has a very large law firm behind him trying to say that this standard has sort of the courts have kind of taken this too far. So first, I just want to ask with the start with Kathy on this, because I feel like you probably have some very strong opinions. <laughs> Generally, right. do you think student loans should be easily discharged in bankruptcy? Well, I want to address this man's uh, actual story for a second, which is that, you know, the guy was in for-profit colleges and law schools. And if you know anything about that industry, you know, it's lecherous and they like lie to you and they tell you you're going to have a a perfect life after you graduate. And it's just, it's a total scam. Um, So I have a lot of sympathy for this person for having felt fallen for that scam in the way you have sympathy for people for falling for scams they should know better from. But they, they, they're very predatory. They, they prey on low information consumers. And this is this guy. So, um, you know, I do think that in some sense, the very, you know, and I'm going to say this over and over again, but the United States government, by giving federal aid to for-profit colleges, has sort of 
pushed the system into its current existence. And so it, it, by, by making it very, very difficult to get rid of um, student debt, the, in some sense, the federal government is saying, yeah, we're going to create the system to be very predatory, but we're not going to help you out when you, are, you fall prey to them. So to answer now, now your question, do I think people should be easily able to uh, discharge debt from bank, uh, student debt from bankruptcy? Not easily, no, but I do think, yes, they should be. Um, and I, I also want to add that the fact that the fact that student debt cannot be discharged in bankruptcy, federal student debt, yeah. is a pretty old law. Yeah. But there's a more recent one that said even private student debt yes. should not be dischargeable through law. And I think that's that's just ridiculous. That was just a lobbying effort on behalf of the private, the student debt so, givers. So, Kathy, I think some listeners might be surprised that you qualified that and said not easily. Why? So I, I, why do you think that? Well, I don't think bank- bankruptcy should, should always any, okay, ever any be of, easy. It should be no easier than any other kind Yes, of but I do think, and you, know, and you described it well, like, it's just gone too far. Like it's gone too far for what it, what kind of extremes you have to go through to, of undue hardship to get rid of your debt. Are there debts. any other examples of you know that are comparable to student loans that are di- discharged in bankruptcy? I mean, like I mean, credit card loans. Yeah, credit card loans are the ones like really big ones. They are discharged for bankruptcy all the time. And, uh, you know, and they don't have any collateral backing them. It's not like they can repossess the stuff you bought with a credit card, which is often groceries or medical uh, debt. Um, So it's, yeah. It is unclear then why there would be a different treatment. So here is one reason I don't think it's totally comparable with credit card debt. Um, When it comes to federal student loans, and again, we're not talking about private loans. We're talking about federal student loans, federal backed, federal, uh, federally issued Department of Education loans. Um, the government is basically coming in and saying, here, we're going to give cheap credit to people who otherwise could not get it. Um, they, that, that's the entire idea. They don't underwrite it. It's a, they go to people who otherwise would have to pay a lot of money to find a loan to go to school and say, here, we're going to help you out. So it's, it's not the same thing. I don't think it's the same as a credit card company, which is essentially making a very specific bet on an individual looks at their credit history and says, we're going to give you uh, credit at a certain rate because we think we're going to make money off of you. So I do think that there is a question of exactly what the standard should be for a federal loan, given that it is a it is sort of a, a, a different beast. That said, I think it is uh, having having read a bit on this issue and looked, you know, at some of the court documents. The argument that lawyers are making is that the this standard of undue hardship has sort of uh, metastasized, and that it, it's become something it wasn't originally intended to be. When Congress first made it harder to get rid of student loans um, in bankruptcy, what they did was they said you can't discharge them for the for five years after you've taken them out. You just can't. But if something happens to you within that five year period that creates an undue hardship. Um, then you can discharge them. I mean, what, does a physical disability qualify? Not as an, always. I mean, what is an un, if, yeah, if not this man who who is like basically unemployable? Then you know what? Then who? It's it's right. very, yeah. Physical, by the way, I want to throw in that yeah. it's kind of uh, it's it's convenient that he's living off his mother's social security check because, as I understand it, they can even garnish your social security check once you become old enough. Um, to get the student loan back. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's so outrageous. I feel like if you're old enough to get a social security check, that's undue hardship. Yeah, period. I mean, there's, there, it's kind of like, there's a little bit of insanity there because just like, what's the point then? But it's one half of the government taking and giving Well, to what them. is the point? I think yeah. I think we should but, talk about the point. But, you know, I think, and this gets to the, the question, well, first off about your question specifically, yes, physical disability is one thing they take into consideration. If you are, you know, really like disabled, 
then you were really never going to able to work. That makes courts a little bit more likely to say, okay, certainty of hopelessness. Um, you're never going to have a job again. But this comes back to what was the point? Well, initially it was to keep people from discharging their loans before that five-year period. Um, but then Congress got rid of that rule and said, okay, no matter what, even if it's after five years, you still can't discharge them without undue hardship. And so it just sort of evolved over time and became a stricter and stricter standard. And so, and part, and then courts started kind of layering on, kind of interpreting it in their own way, because it's a very vague, I mean, the, the legislative language isn't very detailed. And so it's, kind of the courts have kind of taken it and run with it. And so now they're saying, okay, maybe we should rethink this because it's been kind of divorced from it, the original purpose of the law. I and think I, it's interesting because legal language is often intentionally vague because yeah. they don't want to make it too specific. They want courts to be able to have flexibility, but it sounds like there needs to be maybe a little bit more detail added to this specification to say what does undue hardship mean. Yeah. And I think... I. I just wanted to talk about the sort of the underlying politics of it, because I think that's one of the most important points here. And it goes back to what I was saying. The federal government is really worried about this undue hardship definition changing, right? If it gets relaxed to some extent, even to some extent, the $1 trillion of student debt, which is now outstanding, is really at risk of being defaulted on for permanently. And the federal government is just like, oh, my God, we can't afford that. We just can't even think about that. So it's 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 a mess. It's a mess um, for students. And it's it's like potentially a huge mess for the, the deficit. Yeah, I mean, I, I think that one of the bigger issues here is that our student loan system wasn't like thought out as like a coherent whole. It's sort of been put together piecemeal. And so you have this rule from the 70s when they first started dealing with the bankruptcy issues that intersects weirdly with the way our student debt system works now. And so and also the cost yeah. of college. I mean, no yeah. one could have foreseen how fast it's rising. Yeah. I mean, especially in a day and age when you pretty much have to get a college education to get a middle class lifestyle. It just it. I have a lot of sympathy for the students that end up in debt without a job. It's really tough. Yeah, I mean, I again, I, I don't know if there's an easy answer here in the end, though, because there, there's still always questions. Should student loans be discharged at the exact same standard as credit card debt? I don't, I'm not certain on that, but yeah, I think that the the there should be at least some sort of well, there, effort there, made to, to, be, to make this whole system a little bit more um, rational. I, I think there there is a sort of I, I don't know the details of this. Maybe you, one of you do, but. Um, there is a sort of like pay what you can type yeah. pay, payment mm -hmm. back. And like if you did that and you said like it's at most 10 years or something, then if you didn't have a job and you could never pay, you'd be done after 10 years. Well, so that's so, yeah, what Kathy's mentioning here is something called income based repayment. And that's actually one of the issues that's coming up in this case is that the courts are saying, listen, you have all these problems. You're, you're not going to be able to pay back this loan, um, these loans. However, there's this thing called income based repayment where you can just pay 10 percent of your in or, or in his case, 15 percent of his income every month above a certain level, essentially above, you know, 150% of the poverty line. Um, and if you're not making any money, you pay nothing. Right. So this shouldn't be a problem for you. And just there, time So out. why does he say it's a problem? Um, there are, you know, there are a lot of issues surrounding, well, for, first off, there, there's, the, there's still the bigger question of um, what the hell does the bankruptcy code actually say here? Um, and then beyond that, you know, should he have to make any payment at all? Why should he have to? Is it fair for him to even be making 15% payments from his income if he manages to make a little bit of money in the future? Um, and then there's a the question of private loans because you can't put a private loan into that sort of program. And he has a lot of private loans. Um, or... I, I am not clear if he has any private loans yeah. left. He did at some point have okay. some private loans. And by the way, I hope we can agree that private student loans should be, you know, dischargeable through bankruptcy. They charge. High rates of interest. Yeah, I mean that's a lot. And they more probably have different review processes for accepting the the borrowers to begin with. Yeah, they, yeah, they do underwriting. I think that's a lot more akin to actual credit card debt. 
Um, anyway, we're gonna have to, we've we've spent a while talking about student debt, and uh, I'm sure we will, <laughs> I'm sure we will return to it in the future. Um, you know, it's really hard to do hiring good people. It is really, really, really tough to find talented employees. And it's also time-consuming to find really talented employees. You have to post jobs to endless number of sites, and you have to go sorting through resumes. It's, it's, a, whole, it's a pain in the butt. Uh, however, there is a solution. ZipRecruiter can help you post to 100-plus job sites with one single click. You can watch brand new candidates roll into ZipRecruiter's easy-to-use interface with just 24 hours after you've put up that job posting. And plus, you can be instantly matched to candidates from over 4 million different resumes. This, this site basically does all the work for you. Today, you can try ZipRecruiter for free. Just go to ZipRecruiter.com slash SlateMoney. Again, that's ZipRecruiter.com slash SlateMoney. And just one more time for good measure, you can try ZipRecruiter for free by going to ZipRecruiter.com slash SlateMoney. All right, it's time for the numbers round. Uh, we'll start off. Miriam, what's your number? My number is 40%. That is the amount Valiant's stock price fell when a short seller's report came out accusing it of accounting fraud. Ooh, uh, okay. what is Valiant? It is a pharmaceutical company. Wow, okay. there's a lot of pharmaceutical stuff going on. Mary, do you mind tell? I mean, this is the thing that Wall Street's been kind of freaking out about all week. Or everyone, It's like the, the story everyone seems to be paying attention about. Miriam, do you want to explain for our listeners a little bit uh, what the Fuhrer is all about? Okay, so Valiant has been a pretty controversial pharmaceutical company. Its business model relies around buying up other drugs and raising the prices, and people got upset about that already. This week, a short seller came out with a note that said basically that Valiant was stuffing the channels, that it was had these pharmacies that it controlled and that it was booking revenue before it was actually selling drugs. Oh, my God. Like fake, fake customers type stuff? Well, basically that it was booking the revenue when the pharmacies were holding the drugs and I not see. when it actually got bought. They actually got bought by uh, consumers. And people were pretty convinced by this argument and the stock has plummeted. And there are a lot of big hedge funds that lost a lot of money. Hmm. Yeah, so they are they were selling to their their pharmacies, but not to actual people who not to any retail customers. Essentially, mm. yes, this is the allegation. That it's now upon Valiant to prove that this is not the case. I, this, this sort of feels like another instance where, where you know short sellers might turn out to be the hero here. Like this yep. is kind of a theme we've come back to again and again. Or on the villain. Show. It's yeah. interesting because readers write in to me all the time accusing short sellers of things. But I think short sellers play a role in the market in totally exposing agreed. these kinds of things. Yep. Um, okay, Kathy. Yeah, so my number is 2,200. Um, Walmart claims to have more than 2,200 engineers working in Silicon Valley um, and building its own cloud data centers in order to, like, sell things on the web. And it's interesting. I read this in a sort of, in, like, Walmart versus Amazon article, which was just basically explaining how Amazon is winning every fight that they do with, with Walmart. So Walmart's trying to fight back by hiring a bunch of engineers and improving their website. But they still only sell, like, 1% or 2% of the amount of stuff that Amazon sells and at higher prices and it's slower shipping rates. Yeah, it just feels like it's the sort of thing where, like, you're... No one, I mean, no, no one looks at Walmart and thinks, yes, you know, order online. Like, th no one thinks like web, right. like web tech company. Web, yeah, I don't think like, they're going to win that fight. Yeah, it's really hard to kind of move, like, when you're a brand as big as Walmart, to kind of reverse the ship. At, uh, and at this I mean, and I think it's actually. I mean, I'm a bit of a contrarian on this. I think it's actually arguable. I mean, Walmart needs to be online. There is no question about it. But Walmart loses money 
through online sales, as do most bricks and mortar retailers. The margins are lower, which is counterintuitive. But if you think about it, if you have a store and you're running a lot of sales through that and you run more sales through the same store, then that's really good for your margins because you already are paying for the cost of that existing store. If you're selling things online, then the, the cost for each item are higher because you have to do free shipping to compete with Amazon. Mm-hmm. You have to do all these fulfillment costs. You have to do there are a lot of individual costs associated with that item. So I think you know Walmart needs to be online. It needs to be investing, uh, but I don't necessarily know that its advantage is in is ever going to be in that area. Right. All right. So my number is also uh, coming back to pharma. It's uh, one dollar. Uh, you may re- recall the story of Martin Shkreli, the ex-hedge funder. Oh, who, who, yeah, bu- <laughs> yeah, right. Who bought up? Who and also uh, alum of my high school, HCHS. What up? Um, who <laughs> went and uh, bought up a drug called Daraprim that is used uh, or is used by AIDS and cancer patients, among other sympathetic uh, individuals, um, and jacked up the price to $750 a pill, uh, causing mass rage across the entire United States. Um, well, a company has uh, kind of, or a hero has emerged, and it says it is now going to offer the same drug essentially for $1 a pill. Cause awesome. Daraprim was off was off patent. Right. It wasn't technically... It's generic. Yeah, it wasn't technically a generic, but it, its patent had expired a long time ago. Right. And so a company called uh, Imprimis Pharmaceuticals, which is known as a drug compounder, essentially what they do is they mix up uh, specialty drugs for patients who can't really find them commercially uh, at the request of their doctor, um, has found a loophole in the law where they say they can basically, or not really a loophole, just a space in the law where they say they can just start producing this stuff for whoever needs it, um, basically starting now. Um, And it's nice because it kind of provides a little bit of an immediate check on companies that want to kind of pull a Shkreli. And he said the, the pull, a Shkreli. <laughs> pull a Shkreli for lack of a better phrase. How many people do you think are going to be that for Halloween? A Shkreli. A Martin yeah, Shkreli. Shkreli. Oh my God. I, like I said, I imagine like if, if, if anyone from my high school throws a party, there'll be like four or five of those wandering around. By the around. way, I, I heard that he donated quite a bit of money to Hunter. Yeah. So I guess my, yeah, I'll tell, talk about that in a minute. Um, <laughs> so, but, um, you know, and the the CEO of this company said they're actually going to try and start a business here where they, if they, they see a niche for themselves where someone jacks up the price of one of these specialty drugs, they're going to try and see if they can mix it uh, and, and sell it at a lower price because obviously it creates a spot in the market and they don't have to deal with all the same regulatory hurdles that some other generic companies would. Um, it's an interesting story and it might give us a little hope that guys like this won't be able to continuously uh, corner the market on these very essential medications. About uh, the money that Shkreli donated to my high school, this, <laughs> a lot of us are, are feeling a little bit torn or not so torn sad about this so one day i was looking at my alum magazine and i this was before the daraprim story had broke and i saw this uh feature on martin and he had just donated a million dollars to hunter uh which is a magnet school in new york city um and you know he said you know without hunter i wouldn't be where i am today and yada yada and it seemed like one of those things where it's like wow way to make everyone else in who you went to school with feel like they're, you know, behind in life. It's like a really amazing <laughs> humble brag. It's like donating a million dollars to high school is like without, is the easiest way to make everyone, you know. Little did they know yeah. at the time. Yeah. And so he um, essentially then a few weeks later after that story ran in the alumni mag, it, this whole thing about what he actually does for a living kind right. of came out um, and made us. I mean, I was kind of talking to people about whether or not they should return the donation. I 
that's a whole other issue. Um, it is funny, though, that that one issue, I, I, I've argued, contained both the most beloved man in New York at that moment and the most hated. Mm-hmm. Um, because the other person being featured was Lin-Manuel Miranda, who, of course, is the writer. Ah, and... I went to college with him. Oh, really? <laughs> went to, so, yeah, he was, a, he was a Hunter alum, and he was, he's the writer of Hamilton and star of Hamilton. Oh, that's great. Basically, every the hottest show on Broadway right now. So the two of them were both featured in this one issue. It was sort of the, the yin and yang of Hunter High. <laughs> um, anyway, that's it for this week. Thanks for listening to Slate Money. Um, just a, a quick heads up. Um, we won't be coming out next Saturday. Um, but fear not. We're going to be posting an episode the following Tuesday. So we're just going to be, uh, I guess, publishing or airing. Do you say airing for a podcast? A little bit later than normal. Uh, if you like the show, subscribe. You can find us by searching for Slate Money in the iTunes store. And if you like it, please do leave a review. You can also write to us at slatemoney at slate.com. I feel like there's probably a mailbag segment coming up in our near future. So please, even if we haven't been wonderful about returning emails lately, please do keep sending them. I, we're, we're doing our best. We love your emails. We love your emails. We do read them and we try to respond as much as possible. Uh, our producer for Slate Money is Audrey Quinn. Our executive producer is Andy Bowers. And Slate Money is part of the Panoply Network. Uh, check out our entire roster of podcasts at iTunes.com slash Panoply. We'll talk to you next week on Slate Money. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform, with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply.